0: Welcome, everybody. I'm here with Ben Johnson of the Perpetual Chess Podcast, and we have a very interesting discussion today, which is what does it take to reach national master? And what we're going to do is we're going to first talk about Ben's quest, because that is his current quest um, to reach national master. And so we're going to talk a little bit about his personal journey, and then we're going to relate it in to these other questions, many of which honestly might sound like it's just some random topic, but it gets heated because, for example, mm. some people believe, oh, anybody can make national master." Well, we're going to talk about it, you know. And then the questions about what it takes, that's also controversial, but also interesting, especially for our Chess Dojo training program, which Ben has just joined. Yes. So Ben, I'm going to introduce you this way in your chess journey. I recently found out, and I would want to hear more about this, that you came up. I guess in high school, maybe as a junior high too, but you can expand with Jen Shahada and Greg Shahada playing like on the same team, maybe playing together. And so tell us a little bit about those formative years of your chess journey.
1: Yeah, happy to do so. First of all, hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for tuning in slash listening. Um, yeah, so I grew up in Center City, Philadelphia. I went to a magnet school called Masterman, a public high school. Um, and actually, it's five through twelve. So uh, for a public school, it was unique. Kind of like Hunter in New York City, it was uniquely situated to have like a enduring chess program because the kids are there for a long time. And being a magnet school, I, look, I don't, I don't know if chess correlates to intelligence, but um, some of the higher uh, test scoring kids within the public schools of Philadelphia so anyway eventually the Shahadis came there Greg was one year beneath me in um, in, in gr- terms of uh, grade um, but and it started chess a little later than me I started competitive chess when I was 12. I guess Greg might have been 11 or 12 too mm-hmm. but um, anyway he we were briefly you know probably up until about the level of 17 1800 we were uh, relatively close in rating and of course Jen is a few years younger than me, I believe two years younger than Greg, mm-hmm. or at least two uh, school years. Um, anyway, he took off like a ra- rocket and I could just see that he, you know, calculated like a monster. But anyway, I mean, it was very formative to uh, be friends with them, spent a lot of time playing video games, playing Blitz at their house. Um, their mom is a legend. She was quite a character. Uh-huh. Um, so it, And then their dad, of course, uh, senior master and uh, taught me a lot. Um, Shout out to Mike Shahadi. And and the program beyond that was strong. I mean, we just had a, a lot of uh, passionate chess players and got to travel and won one team nationals one year. So anyway, that's how I got started.
0: So my intuition of the Shahada siblings is that they did not get good by studying, but rather by doing stuff like playing and then hanging out at tournaments and like maybe you know camps and lessons and stuff like that. Is that is that roughly correct or what do you think
1: it's roughly correct but like there's if you walk in their house there's Mm -hmm. like they had a you know sort of tv slash living room at the entry in like an open kitchen situation and there's there's just going to be a chess set on the table you know right and and mike shahadi had hundreds of chess books um So they did their share of tactics for sure, but it was Mm -hmm. also one of these things where like, they're not sitting there studying for hours at a time, but it's always there and it could pop up at any moment. And um, you know, um, uh, Mike Shahadi invested in their chess education. I just interviewed Gregory Kaidanov, like Mm -hmm. back in the day, he was one of the only chess trainers in in the US. And he would come from Kentucky for weekends and and work with them. Um, So I would say, I, I generally agree with you. They largely learn by playing, as most talented kids do. Um, but their the, their their chess culture is not to be discounted. And also, their mom is like was like a brilliant. rest in peace. She was like a brilliant bridge player. She played Scrabble. She was a mm-hmm. chemistry professor. So there was this sort of like game hacking study culture that kind of permeated their household. Uh-huh. It was a unique upbringing. Oh, that's really cool.
0: And so you hung out there a lot a lot yeah 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 that's really cool so maybe it's true for you too is that you didn't study it wasn't so much studying in those formative years but it's really like playing and talking about it
1: yeah for sure i mean i i probably i feel like i probably read more chess books on my own than them because i didn't have uh like you know my parent my family didn't play chess mm. so in downtime at home i did uh read some books but certainly uh, in looking back i don't think that was like the primary contributor to uh, whatever improvement I made. So you
0: said like, you guys were like, set. you and Greg were like 17, 1800, and then he took off. So what year was that where he exploded and you were left behind?
1: Yeah, I would have to think about it, but by the time he was, I was, uh, 13 and he was 12, I was Uh 14, he was 13, somewhere around there. He was just boom off to the races. Um,
0: Was that depressing?
1: (laughs) Yeah, but I've I've always thought that that was a good life lesson because Uh it taught me like already I'm not going to, you know, at some point as a kid, you realize like, I love baseball. I love basketball. But at some point you're aware you're not going to be a professional athlete. Um, And with chess I was pretty good. Um, I was one of the better kids in this school filled with uh, chess players. Um, But you reach a point where you just say, okay, I mean, this person is more talented than me. And I felt like that's a really important life lesson, like that, that you're not just going to coast to get somewhere. Mm -hmm. And when I became a professional poker player, many years later, I felt like it was uh, especially helpful because I had, I had no illusions that I was like a super genius. You know, Uh it was more about trying to find the right competition to face. Um, So, which unfortunately is harder to do in chess, but at least that my chess background Uh, I mean, my, yeah, my chess background helped me game select better in poker.
0: Uh Uh-huh. So also another uh, interesting parallel between you and Greg that you both did that when, when I guess it was like early 2000s when Texas Hold'em became a big thing. You guys both went in that direction.
1: Yeah. I graduated college in 1999. I'm super old. Yeah. And then uh, Greg had been in New York basically for a couple of years already. And I moved to New York once I graduated college uh, from Pomona in California. Mm-hmm. And there were already in the round We had seen rounders. So we had started reading poker books because now we knew yeah. there was this game where you could make money. Yeah. So by the time the whole card cam and stuff came out, we were like ahead of the curve because we knew a few basics.
0: Yeah. OK, well, let's so let's dial it back a little bit. What was your rating when you finished high school?
1: Uh, I made master. I made twenty two hundred uh, my senior year. My peak okay. rating was was about twenty two seventy ish. Okay. Um, okay. And it was all downhill from there. <laughs> so it's funny. I didn't
0: actually know that. I'm glad we got that clarified because, like, right, I looked just at the you know USCF chart went back a little bit and right. You've been in like in the 2100 zone for a while.
1: Yeah. It's depressing, <laughs> but I mean, I don't even feel bad about it anymore because it, it is my, I mean, it's roughly my strength. I mean, uh-huh. we've obviously you guys and on perpetual chess, it has come up that the rating scale has changed plus I'm older. So, right. um, you know, it's, uh, it's sad, but accurate. So I'm
0: going to guess like in that period of years, there was a, vast stretches of time where you weren't really playing so so right we were talking about i asked
1: oh yeah years without playing yeah Yeah. so when i was playing poker professionally and actually this was even true i taught chess coming out of college i mean actually worked i had a couple jobs i worked briefly in the corporate world Uh um but i would play occasionally at the Marshall and stuff like that and that continued but I wasn't studying so Mm -hmm. that was sort of when the decline started at the time I didn't really have appreciation for the fact that you can't just show up and play yeah um I mean you can you know I was playing for fun I didn't have any grand ambition it's just you can't expect uh to maintain your level um so yeah it's just been a slow bleed ever since but certainly there have been many there have been you know years at a time where I didn't play chess I only uh, really got back into the chess world in like 2015. And because I'm a dad, even in that period, there have been periods where I'm less active in tournament chess and periods where I'm more active. Right. Now my kids are like out of the daycare age. So I likely will be playing tournament chess for the foreseeable future. Right. And you, um, wh- when did you start the
0: Perpetual podcast? Uh,
1: 2016, I believe it was. I'm so old, right. it's hard to keep track. But yeah. but yeah it's been a while and so I guess one of the
0: interesting things about your life journey is when you start a perpetual pod like that which especially is focused on how do you improve at the game then naturally you have the inclination and will be kind of socially uh there'll be peer pressure for you to improve your game as well
1: yeah it's especially the adult improver interviews you know i yeah. when i started perpetual chess i envisioned it i mean it still is in part but i was more interested in chess culture i'd uh, i'd uh, been through the phases of grief for my own chess game already <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> passed passed through all five of them but but then um you know i'm interviewing people every week and people are sacrificing so much and working so hard that i just felt like a you know it's like the uh the cliche of like you're you're a better teacher if you're engaged in the activity. I just feel like uh, I I should try as well. So yeah, so that that's a big motivator for sure. And so one of the interesting things
0: about our discussion today is I feel you are unique in that you've been exposed to maybe the most of all people in the universe of the most uh, different approaches to chess improvement like just a plethora of voices coming from all directions of different ways to improve.
1: Yeah, it's, it's been fascinating. I I'm consider myself very lucky for sure. It's a lot of fun to uh, pick, pick all these geniuses' brains. And
0: one thing, too, we talked a little bit uh, just before the show, I think two days ago, is that in some ways it might be um, a liability to have so many different voices in your head. Yeah, right? for sure.
1: Yeah. I, I I agree. I mean you've no matter what, you know, no matter what your situation, you've got to filter out the noise and eventually distill things down to your own sort of core beliefs. And I've certainly uh certainly done that as well. Um right. and I try not to like argue with the guests, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um but but I've certainly have my own opinions. But on the other hand, um it's not like you know, on the one hand, I don't work as hard on my chest as most of the especially the adult improvers that I interview. So mm-hmm. that's part of why I haven't had the improvement. But the other is I want to be clear that like I don't claim, you know, I've decided what works for me, but I don't uh-huh. claim to have the answers, you know, by right. any means. Right. Okay, yeah, we're gonna get
0: into what works for you just in a second, too. Um, let's start with a controversial question, but it does it does pertain. All right. So a lot of people in the Twitter sphere, and even I saw in chat earlier, have the belief that anybody can make master. What's your sense on that question?
1: I think that that's the question. That's like the cutoff where it might be true. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that people have, have owned in on the right sort of ballpark in terms of what's achievable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say if you start as a teenager and you work really hard, Um, it's probably, I'm guessing it's true. You know, it might take some people like an ungodly amount of work uh, and maybe isn't worth it. But I think that that is kind of um, around where, uh, where one can get. Um, But if you start as an adult, um, especially something happens past the age of 30 I'm not a neuroscientist mm-hmm. but just anecdotally from interviewing so many people and looking right. at a lot of reading graphs and stuff right um, you know there I don't I maybe don't know of any if anyone does but anyone who started scratch started chess from scratch past the age of 30 mm-hmm. I can't think of anyone who made it to at least feed a master you know um, so you certainly are, are but People are improving so fast. You see so many stories online that Mm -hmm. um, people are learning so much faster. It wouldn't surprise me if that changed in the coming years, but I think it'll always be an outlier.
0: Okay. Yeah. So here, okay. So right. The, the, the answer that you're giving is interesting. I just want to put in my own words, anybody can make master, but the precondition is they had to have spent a good portion of their youth doing it.
1: Yeah, I think if you start at 18 even, you're probably fine, it seems like. Um, and again, I'm not saying it's like the best goal in the world. I mean, yeah. Maybe when you're 18, you should be doing other things. Yeah. But, but you can make it if you start at 18.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I will say I I disagree. Um, so I've done a lot of coaching of a lot of different uh, levels. Definitely, it's I have a lot of sympathy with the idea that if you start younger, you're going to have an advantage. And definitely like, for example, I've coached a lot of people from 1800 to 2000. We're talking about USCF here, by the way, for those uh, watching that aren't familiar with the U S system, this national master is kind of this golden aura thing that's been around since I was a kid. And that's just 2200 USCF. It's really about 2100 FIDE, Uh, but here in the States, it's definitely a big time deal. And just to To show it as a kind of a funny story, I'm teaching James Altucher, and he is a genius at talking to people, kind of selling himself.
1: And one thing he did
0: that's so remarkable is he, years ago, made master. He's now trying to make master again. But he made master with the explicit intention of being able to tell people who are outside the chess world, that he's a master because outside the chess world, whether you tell somebody you're a master or a grandmaster, it's all the same. It sounds really awesome. Right. So there's this aura about the national master. that's is especially compelling for everybody, but especially the non-chess world.
1: Yeah, it's a really good insight. I've, yeah, I've been lucky enough to interview James a couple of times, and yeah, he's he's spot on. But it's funny because he fell for the trap. You know, he, I mean, you do keep the national master title yeah. uh, if your rating falls below 2200, but you don't feel the same. I can yeah. say uh, from my own experience. Yeah. And um, and yeah, he he like dropped the mic when his rating hit 2200 initially, but he got sucked back in, and now he's on the hamster wheel trying to get back up to 2200, which I can definitely relate to.
0: Right. So anyways, just from my own experience, I'll I'll put it this way. I have coached a number of different people who have reached their plateau. And in general, like when you reach the plateau, the next hundred points are going to be really tough. Really tough. So I think a lot of people, I've got a lot of emails from people saying things like, Jesse, my rating is 1500. I'm 30 years old and I want to be a grandmaster. I'm like, I don't know, boss. I don't know. Um, Now, a lot of those adult improvers haven't actually reached their plateau yet. So, you know, there's still room for growth and I don't know what your plateau is. But once you reach that plateau and it's kind of like you can see it statistically in in a rating graph. Once you reach that plateau, I think we can do 100 points, you know, and then past 100 points, it starts becoming magical. (laughs) If you get more than 100 points after you reach the plateau, it probably means that wasn't your actual plateau. That's what it probably means. But that's my sense is that that the next 100 points is that's where the hard work comes and that yeah, I think 2200 is actually very very special. And maybe the way I think about it is when I go to the gym and I see somebody who's in the top 10%, they look amazing to me. They're just like on another level. You meet someone in the top 1%, well that's that's like stunning. You meet somebody who's one in a thousand, which is I think over 2200 is is better than one in a thousand. Well, that's like <laughs> and that woman or man is just like a brick you know it's just stunning and so it's something you can see visually which I think people don't appreciate when they say everybody can make 2200 I mean that's a very one in a thousand is just in anything it's going to be a very uh, difficult competitive achievement
1: yeah it's a good point although the one in a thousand would be like anyone who knows the rules of chess I mean and once you get to tournament players it's already not Quite, quite as but But listen, I don't, but listen, I don't want to argue with you if you want to like say being 2200 is amazing. (laughs) I think, but
0: it's one in a thousand of people playing. It's not just in the world.
1: Yeah. No, it's true. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I agree. So, um. Why don't we start here by just saying that when we played in a tournament together recently and you told me an interesting thing, which I have a lot of sympathy for, that you learned from I am John Donaldson, who was on your show. And he said that one of the minimums, one of the requirements to making progress is I think he said, how many games a year did he say? He said 50 rated games a 50 year. 50 rating games. And I think that, that made a lot of intuitive sense to me you know, and definitely part of our uh, dojo training program is, you know, you got to play the games and then analyze them. And a lot of people ask us how many um, hours a week. That's a very typical question we get. How many hours a week should we study? Uh, And that's important. But I think having that 50 is a really interesting figure. It's hard. It's hard. How are you doing with that quest with 50 this year?
1: I'm well. I'm I'm on pace. I think I, I uh-huh. should should be more diligent about the counting. But basically, that means playing a tournament uh, ten out of twelve months, more or less. And I've managed that. I mean, I think I only missed one month in its entirety. Um, I'm in a bit of a dry spell right now, um, uh-huh. which is part of the reason my motivation has been really flagging. Right. But honestly, like I try to set smart goals—goals goals that are not um, not just based on like I'm going to win all my games or whatever um uh so my first goal of the year was to play 50 games and basically my other goals just involved analyzing them and i am reaching that even Mm -hmm. if uh my improvement is not um it's i mean I, i do feel like i'm making progress but obviously one always wants more okay
0: i think that if anyone's listening to this i think that's a good fundamental first takeaway that if you want to improve actually whether it's national master or not having 50 games a year that might be a little bit much, even, but that's a good benchmark for improvement. I think that yeah, we're not, we're we should about, say yeah. We're not talking I mean, about online should...
1: games. We're talking about over the board games. In theory, yeah. yeah. I mean, I know for a lot of people, they come they've come up now in the online age, and yeah. it's different. Um, but I, you know, and I'm sure you're the same, Jesse. I always encourage people to at least try over the board because, at least for me, the what I retain from playing over the board is like four x, you know what I retain from playing, um, on the computer. Well, and let me ask you, so let me ask you this. We're about to talk to
0: uh, ask about what we think other things you should do to make national master. But I want to ask you just in a personal way, do you have a sense of what your strengths and weaknesses are?
1: Yeah, uh, I think so. Um, I'm, let's see, I'm not an amazing calculator for, my rating slash level mm-hmm. um, i feel like there are holes in my analysis when i calculate um, my opening knowledge is actually pretty good even though it doesn't feel like it mm-hmm. but i you know if i do look at data of like the evaluation of my position after 15 moves both with white and with black um i uh i'm doing fine the opening is i'm if anything it's a strength um I think I have a pretty decent positional sense. Um, I've mentioned to you, Jesse, at least I'm working with coach, with uh, Grandmaster Axel Bachman as my coach and yeah. that's one strength that he highlights. I think reading a lot of chess books has certainly helped in that regard. I have a decent intuitive sense for um, positional slash boring chess, but yeah. I'm, I can be impractical. I struggle with time management. Um, so that's a serious issue. Um, I'm competitive, so I try hard and I think uh, I never feel, felt like I was like super talented. So to the extent I achieved anything when I was younger, I think uh, competitiveness helped. And that's, uh, that's still there when I play over the board. And it really it's again, it's really not when I play anything online. But yeah, I mean, I would say weaknesses in summation. Weaknesses uh-huh. are, oh, calculation, killer instinct, like the, the ability to, to sacrifice on demand for you know, nebulous compensation or unclear compensation. I could use a better killer instinct when I uh, have the, playing with the initiative, I guess is another way you could describe uh-huh. it as, and time management, I'd say, are the three biggest weaknesses. And uh, what is it that Ramesh says? Uh, strength is just absence of weakness. Um, I I feel like everything else I guess you'd call it a strength even though I don't feel like I'm amazing at those things either yeah okay
0: yeah that's a pretty um, common list of the sort calculation um, time management and then let's call it putting people away yeah yeah okay now does Axel have any insights uh, on top of that or is that kind of a consensus you guys have formed
1: Uh, That's the consensus we have formed. And I mean, I think he sort of feels like, um, you know, not not to speak for him, but I think Mm -hmm. we're both on the same page that just playing, you know, the feedback cycle of playing and reviewing and playing and reviewing. Yeah. um, I mean, it does seem to lead to progress, especially in terms of like the time management and the practical aspects of competitive chess. Um, Every time I take a lot of time off, I feel like, uh, I've I've taken two steps back in terms of like managing game flow and uh, at my level um, at least for me so much of uh, attaining better results feels like raising feels like it's important to raise my floor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really think it's just staying on top of it rather than expecting sort of Herculean leaps in terms of like my calculation ability, for example. But he does certainly in terms of like the. Um, converting and uh, playing with initiative—I mean, that's something where, like, you know, you can look at Tal and Kasparov games and enjoy that process. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, it's it's something that he highlights whenever it comes up in in my games. So I do feel like just being—it's one of those things where being aware of the weakness can can kind of push you over the edge. Like now, when I'm playing in a tournament, if I have a moment where I can go for like a safe option or a more aggressive option. Uh I can try in my head to sort of adjust for the fact that I know I'm predisposed to going towards the safe one. So just shut that voice out.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, here's, okay, here's the thing. Uh, I'll give you my two cents and you can respond. Um, And doing a lot of coaching, my sense is that Time management is definitely something where people can improve. And in particular, what I would say about it is that the intuitive decisions need to be made quickly so that you will have time when the time to calculate comes along. And that learning, the distinction between the two, the intuitive decisions and the ones to calculate, let's call them the critical moments, that you get that from going over your games so that's my sense of that and i do
1: think there's a lot of room for improvement I hope so it's been a lifelong struggle for me even when <laughs> i was i mean i don't feel like that's an i mean i don't feel like I'm really worse than i was when i was like 2270 uh-huh. yeah So 25 years ago i think it's just that that chess has changed but time management was was never a, a big strength of mine although that's another thing where when I was younger I was playing all the time and i do feel like that helps a lot. And the more you play, the better, you know, your openings and structures and stuff. But so I've gotten moderately better, but it's, uh, the definitely moments where I have to tell myself that, uh, relapse is part of recovery. (laughs) Um, whereas calculation,
0: I think there's, it's, it's hard. I think it's actually hard to get measurable improvement. Um, for example, I've got a I've got a guy, we've been, I've been working with him for a long time. He's an older guy, and he's about 2,100 positionally and about 800 tactically. <laughs> and so he's very frustrated with it. Um, and because he's getting older, I can actually see the tactics getting worse. So even though he's trying to do stuff, I can see it getting worse. I've had other students who are a little older, like around, let's say, 1,800, 1,800. And the tactics, is just really hard to push that bar up. It's one of the reasons I'm doubtful everybody can make 2,200, precisely because tactics is something uh, that's very hard to improve. For example, in sports, they have this thing called the standing high jump. So you don't get to run to start. You just jump. And that's been known to be a thing where you, you can't make that much improvement. Marginal. Just very marginal. I think you can... Before a tournament you do some tactics, maybe you know, you can kind of sharpen your mind up and stuff, but I i don't know if that part of a person's game can be uh that improved.
1: I agree. Yeah. Sad truth, but yeah, it's it's very hard.
0: Maybe I think you could argue that like uh if you are a French player or a Kings Indian player and you kind of get structures that are familiar, a lot of times you can become tactically uh aware of certain patterns in those positions, right? So I think that speaks to the fact that for especially for for anybody, really, you want to have structures where you're kind of familiar with the transformations that can happen in them. so that's yeah, something yeah. a way to beat maybe and <laughs> to, yes. to, to hack uh, the lack of tactical progress.
1: yeah, that's a good insight, yeah
0: um, so well, maybe just for fun, why don't we do this? I'm going to read off what is in the 2000 to 2100. Again, this is the the FIDE chest, chest dojo training plan, which Ven has just joined. I'm going to read off the things that kind of are on the to-do list. And what I'd be interested in is just your take of whether it's Maybe maybe I just a quick yes or no, or I don't know. And then also I'm going to read off all this stuff, and then you just quickly respond, or you can go in deep. deep Also, I want you to say if you think there's something we're missing.
1: All okay. Right?
0: Okay, so let's start. The, we'll start with the big one, and oh, my gosh. We have 80 classical games and some postmortems, but the main thing is 80 classical games that you have to – annotate and submit to the database. Per is that per year or No, we think the, the goal the, the claim is this might be this might be wrong. The claim is if you do those 80 games along with everything else in the program that you will make it. That's
1: the claim. That you'll graduate from that that you'll make 2200, yeah. Um so that that and everything else in the program? That and everything um, else
0: in the program, yeah.
1: I mean, it it all comes down to um, duration to to how how long are we talking for me to do those things? Uh, I think in in a uh, condensed period of time, I mean, even a year, uh, two years, two years might be a stretch since I'm still sticking by the 50 games a year thing. Um, But yeah, I think uh, I think it's at the outer bound of what I can do, but I think it's fully doable.
0: Well, it's definitely doable. I mean, the question is maybe we need more. I mean, because let's think about a, your perspective. You're doing 50 games a year and this 80 games, that's about a year and a half.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, it's still that, a yeah. yeah. But like for this, I mean, because uh, in thinking about it, I'm, I think it would be a useful exercise for me to do the games I've played. You know, I've been um, playing seriously again for one and a half to two years, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like the tournament games I've already played, it would be quite useful. Um, and obviously, I'm going to continue to play, but I'm not going to play 80 rated games in a year. It's just my wife is uh, gonna kick me out of the dojo. No, so. no, no.
0: Yeah. But, but the 80 wasn't meant to be in a year. Okay, I mean, that's at your own pace.
1: Oh, yeah, right? I think it's I mean, I think I can get there. Uh, like I don't like to and I always tell this to improvers that I interview, I don't yeah. like to put like a time deadline, right if you're following the process. Right. So I would say if I did that over a year, a year and a half and got to 80 games, um, I feel like I would I would be at least halfway there um, in terms of rating. Right. Now, one thing I'll
0: say about the Doja training program is really we're getting a lot of data now, so it's really kind of, you know, this thing, this whole thing will evolve. But one cool thing we've started to do is how many, on average, how many uh, points do you gain when you click on a box, right? Right. And... Um, One of the things about making 2200, we just got to say, and I've seen this with so many people is that the amount of work that you need to make it, let's say from 800 to 900 is a lot. You're going to need a lot more work to make it from 2000 to 2100, right? Yeah. That's at least my intuitive sense. And we're going to get some data to back it up sooner, uh, soon, but in any case, Maybe <laughs> is what of my own caveat of this maybe we need more than 80 games and definitely it's true that I don't think those 80 games could be stretched out over four years. let's say you doing a right. program for four years and you're trying to make you're trying to go from uh, 2100 USCF to 2200 that's you, you might not make it whereas yeah. the claim here is let's say Ben does this in a year and a half does the games plus everything else I'm about to mention that he would make it. By the way, one of the cool things I want to stress that I would hope would be the case for you and other people trying to reach 2200 is uh, in my coaching, I've often had difficulty getting people to be diligent about their game annotations. Like, I, it's one of the requirements. If you want to work with me, you have to do the annotations even before we meet. But a lot of times those annotations can be kind of sloppy. And so I was really surprised to see that the people who are submitting games to the database, in a sense, publishing them, right? Not just for me, but publishing them to the world. Those annotations are amazing. I mean, really strong annotations. And so it's one of the it's, it brings back this Botvinnik thing where the idea was, you know, you do your analysis and then you publish it. And then there's this weird psychological thing, right, about publishing something where you're like, you're going to write it in a way so that your thoughts are cogent for a broad audience. At least that's in the back of your head when you're doing it.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great idea because I do look at all my games, mm-hmm. um, but uh, the depth probably could be improved. And I think uh, Stephen in chat had asked if I was doing the Jesse Christ style like five pages of notebook about each game burying my soul. Um, Yeah. And I I don't do a great job of that. I'm playing some rapid just due to efficacy, which is another issue because every time I play game 30 or game 45, I lose rating point. Uh I tend to gain them when I play classical uh, because I, I think it's partially because I'm not because of the impracticality and because I'm not a great calculator. Like Magnus was talking about this in uh, the Lex Friedman interview, the slower the game, you can cover up your weaknesses. Um, huh. and, and I definitely feel that way with classical chess. So I make solid progress in classical chess, but I can't leave leave my family 10 times a year, um, you know, more like five times a year. Right. So it's when I'm trying to stay sharp by playing rapid that I keep uh, encountering setbacks. And <laughs> those games I find a hard time analyzing. Another thing I struggle with Um, Excuse me, I'm 45 and I don't know if other people notice this, Jesse, you would Mm. be able to speak to this. If I go through a game, even after I play it, um, Mm -hmm. this is one big change in aging is I have trouble remembering what I was thinking at the board. Even Mm. if I was, even if I'm looking at it like that day, next day, you know, uh, and it's not like I'm sitting there twiddling my thumbs during the game. I am calculating and I am thinking, but, you know, Axel asked me like, well, did you think about this? Why didn't you do that? You know, yeah. and and, you know, 30, 40 percent of the time, I'm like, I don't remember. And it's uh-huh. um, it's quite humbling. I don't know if Evan in chat or you, Jesse, um, or anyone else in their 40s and beyond uh, could could speak to whether they have similar experiences. Uh, yes. Axel Bachman is my coach to man with a uh, head of dog. Um, <laughs> so one thing I'll say about
0: that is if you come, if, if you do it on a notebook with a real board, your mind will not be on the computer. And one thing about Kahneman that I'm really appreciating, I'm reading this book again. I, well, oh, I, wow. kind, of, I kind of skimmed it before. I didn't really appreciate it, but the, thinking fast and slow is to do something like reconstruct your thoughts, that's going to be a system two operation, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be like whether your memory is good or not, you really want to get in there and be like, okay, this is where I was going. And a lot of times it isn't like some deep, variation that you have to remember, but just like, what was my intuition? And just trying to write it down, like what was my intuition? This was my intuition, right? And that's not gonna happen, like right now, if you asked me to put up a board in front of me and had me do some deep thoughts, man. I got Twitter over here, I got the chat over here, man. I got all kinds of things going on, man. Not so easy, that's why I really think it's important and would help if you did it uh, on a real board. Um, yeah that makes sense that's my real pro tip and you're going to only do system two thinking on a real board you're not going to do it in on a screen that's that's my pro tip with that
1: yeah Yeah, and actually as i think about it with your notebook idea you know again to refer to james altisher he talks about uh being like an idea machine uh Uh like a creative writing workshop where you're just supposed to like sit there with a blank page and just like generate thoughts right so maybe the maybe part of the solution is like I'm not sitting there trying to remember what I was thinking enough. Like, I just need to sit there and suffer. (laughs) What the hell was I thinking at that moment? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Let's
0: run through some more of these things. You don't have to, we don't have to go in deep, uh, but but it's good to talk about. Uh, All right. You haven't done the Polgar Mate in Twos. I don't know if you've I haven't. Used. That
1: would be good for me because I've uh, another thing about what you were saying about calculation mm-hmm. is like you know. Again, I interviewed Ramesh fairly recently. His his new book is fantastic, but I mean, he's training Pragananda and young, super ambitious players. Right. And when I when I look at that book, it's it's just tough. And then you hear Magnus talking about how a strength that's never been his strength, and a strength mm-hmm. of his is a. Uh, simple tactics, what he calls, or, or shorter calculation. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like as you get older, it's more doable. You're never just going to be like you on the puzzle rush leaderboard, but you can get better. Like at, at me to two to four, there's no, um, there's no like um, mental constraint to me visualizing a few moves ahead. Um, You know, the board doesn't get too foggy.
0: Yeah. Anyways, I did a a vid recently called uh, the book that helped me make GM and, I think one way that the maiden twos are different than other problems is that it really uh, gets all the patterns directly in front of your head, <laughs> imprints yeah. them on your head so then you're ready to go. Okay, yeah. next one. How do you, you – you haven't done the puzzle rush stuff.
1: Uh, I've every time um, I you know like Elijah Logazar a while ago was like trying to get people to submit data. Yeah, um, I didn't do that, but every time I tell myself I'm going to make it a part of a daily routine, I last about ten days and then just kind of forget slash stop. Um, but I'm weak at puzzle rush and uh, not particularly good at blitz for my reading.
0: Now we. I'll say this about our puzzle rush requirement: of of all the check boxes that we have on our scoreboard, that's the one that people uniformly click off first.
1: Huh. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, not me. I don't I don't love it. Uh, yeah. but I think it's partially because it like uh, calls to calls to mind my uh, my shortcomings too much. Maybe
0: I also think though that it's one of these things that so uh, in the the training program. One of the things that I think is powerful about it is for the most part, you're doing stuff that is system two thinking. Like you're going to do some deep thinking. And even if you want to be a good blitz player, I think you need to do that deep thinking to kind of get your chess brain really working and uh, imprinted. And the puzzle rush is actually something where you don't, you can use it as a distraction to your daily life. It's not something where you have to like really go deep. It's like Blitz or, uh, you know, Puzzle Rush, where you just can kind of sit there and check out for a while, like a video game. So I think that's why it's so popular. And arguably, it shouldn't even be in there. It's, it's, it's arguable. Uh, but we do have it in there. I thought it was kind of an enjoyable thing. And I clicked it off. You know, we also have the survival in there. The survival is definitely a little bit more substantive than the the five minute one.
1: Yeah. Agreed. I struggle. I I'm more of a book guy. Um, anyway, like, especially when it comes to tactics training and come up on the podcast, like the, the, the inclination to click is very strong Yeah. when you're on the computer. So, um, I mean, I, I would, I would do it if I'm going to get kicked out of the dojo for not doing it, but, yeah. but, um, but I would prefer to just grind mate in twos and mate in threes. And actually I think, uh, in terms of strength and weaknesses, I think even under the umbrella of tactics, um, especially in Blitz, I feel like I miss more mates than I should. So I think it would be uh, helpful. Cool, cool.
0: Um, one book that you turned me on to was that Chess Tactics from Scratch. And then so for your section, our tactics book is The Woodpecker Method. And I haven't done it. So mm-hmm. I actually, and, and you've talked a lot about, that book has been very popular on your podcast and others Uh, and did you do it once or twice?
1: Uh, no, I didn't even complete it. Um, I, but I did the first two sections, the advanced section got fairly hard and I got mildly frustrated with the soft fail type answers. Like, uh, Mm. it's, I didn't consider it, um, a perfect, uh, tactics book towards the end, but Mm -hmm. the first two parts I really, uh, really like. Um, so that's where I am with it. I, I would do it again. Um, but, um, but I don't think there's anything magic about that book in particular. I mean, it's a good book, mm-hmm. but it's more about the, the method and the repetition and the measuring um, than that exact book. Right.
0: I think I'll, I'll read it at some point. Uh, you know, I, I actually enjoy doing puzzles. It just <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know. I enjoy doing puzzles. so I'll check it out. I
1: soon. would, too, if I was a grandmaster, Jesse.
0: <laughs> Everybody could do some puzzles. All right, then we got the sparring position. I think we should—we just have one listed, and I think we should probably add more, especially for this thing. It's—it's it's a really cool idea, just to throw you into a a wild position with somebody, and then you got to beat them. You know, yeah. And that's—I mean, the, that's one.
1: I don't yeah. know. That's one where I may push back a little bit, just yeah. because, like, for us working adults, yeah. like every moment is precious. You know, yeah. so. Every moment that you choose to study chess, you, you just, I've, I'm always thinking, is this like the highest and best use of this moment? You yeah. know? And I'm just not sure, again, because I prefer OTB uh-huh. uh, play, the idea of like online sparring games, I'm not totally sold that that's the best use of, uh, of okay. my chess study time. That's fair. Um, one thing actually about the program is
0: kind of a fundamental hidden belief about it. Is that you know people the way I imagine is people are gonna come in here and they're gonna first do the things that they're good at and that they enjoy. And usually they are those are the same things. If you enjoy something, you're probably pretty good at it. So let's imagine now a lot of people are moving on to the next rating band before they've completed everything. Great. And that usually means that they haven't hit their plateau yet. But if someone's close to their plateau, which is really what this is designed for, right? is that the idea would be, okay, if you're at, your, you're at your plateau, the hope is that this will take you to the next level. Uh, that, you know, you're going to do a bunch of tasks and then at a certain point, like things are going to be re- remaining that you haven't done. And those things, if you do them, will be the the things that would be like, oh yeah, that's something maybe you should have done. So for example, if you hadn't done the made in twos and it was just this glaring box left, boom, the belief would be that will help you. Same thing maybe with Puzzle Rush. Let's say you delay doing the Puzzle Rush. I don't have any problem with you delaying it, but the idea would be like, if you still haven't made it, then that might be a good thing for you to do. And the sparring stuff, we're going to talk about it. We're going to have more than one sparring situation. I think it's... Pretty good. Now, the sparring, by the way, is not like an epic uh, long game when you do the sparring. I think sparring is 15-5. So it's not epically long. And the same thing with uh, all, of, all of the stuff that we're about to get into, too. Maybe, maybe I'll talk more about it as we go through. Endgame strategy you read. Might be, that's always good to read again.
1: Yeah, I've read that twice. It's fantastic.
0: Good. Now, the sparring positions, for example, a lot of those come out of the Shereshevsky book so i take a position that's in the book that you know maybe somebody has the advantage and then you have to show that you can win i think sometimes it's 2 out of 3 sometimes it's 3 out of 3 from those positions um and those ones uh, are also not epically long games um and yeah so i'm first of all i share a prejudice with you <laughs> i do not want to play like long over the board games online just not something i want to do if if i did maybe Kosi would turn me on he's got this new board this new dgt board you know and so he he could like play and then uh somehow it's going to go online at the same time if i was going to do it that would be like if i was gonna do a long game that's what i'd do um however this other stuff which isn't you know a quicker time control makes a lot more sense. So for example, we got the sparring positions, we got end game algorithms, you know, for example, from a, a winning position in the rook and bishop versus rook to be able to win that thing several times in a row, for example. Um, and then the real thing I'm sure would help you, Ben, I'm sure would help you. And this would, you would have to do this. I guess you could set this up to do it in person, but it would definitely help you is the rook end game progression. Um, I definitely believe of all the things, like hour for hour, if you're talking about efficacy, that that trying to win the rook endgame progression against people in your cohort, that that would be what you, you need most.
1: Rook but, endings, I believe it. I, I feel like that's another I'm not terrible at them, even though I'm not like, I, I'm not a grind uh, 100 endgames you must know, let alone yeah. the Varetsky manual guy, although I'm sure it would be good for me. Yeah. Um, but I think I have a decent practical sense for rook-end games because of, uh, I don't know, and it's another sort of, it strikes me as more of a system to uh, skill.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's almost like a different game. Like chess yeah. has rules, but then the rook-end game yeah. has its own special rules. And I think especially where you're at, where you're going to be playing a lot of kids – yeah. They're terrible. Man, am I
1: ever. They're yeah. terrible. That's their No, yeah, and weakness. I've noticed. Yeah, I, and that's another thing that playing gets me better at is just the practical aspects of, like, where to lead the game uh, against your opponent.
0: And one cool thing about, say, the rook endgames is if you get skill in it, first you're just going to have confidence, but like, okay, this is going to the endgame, no problem, I feel good about it. Whereas, like, Altucher never gets to an endgame. because he's always doing some crazy tactical thing blowing up the position first, where if you just have the confidence to go into it, it's just, it's not just a skill, but it's like, okay, I'm okay with this happening. Right. Yeah. Um, and maybe, you know, I, I I mean, if I'm not your coach, but maybe the uh, an approach for you is even to focus on being boring. Maybe you want to be boring. Maybe you want to just like slip out of the opening and head for these quiet positions where you can have positional skill and then maybe crush somebody in a longer game.
1: Yeah, I think yeah, Axel would, would probably agree with you there. But it's a, it's an interesting dichotomy because while that's true, I still need to improve my dynamic play. Like you can't you can't just hide, you can't tailor your whole game to avoid dynamic chess, you know? Yeah. So it's like the push and pull of like, yes, I I would at the margins prefer to play an end game against a kid or prefer to play a quieter position, but I need to improve uh, at the more dynamic positions. And to that point, I know that you have not read the main book of the
0: uh, cohort, which is the Talbot Vinnick 1960. And there is consensus, Ben, that that is the greatest chess book of all time. And there it is sitting there in your cohort,
1: amazing. Yeah, and, and it's gotta be the most like the biggest omission from like my chess canon. I can't think of anything else on, on that level. I think most of other, the other most famous chess books I've read. Um,
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously you could use that in one of your own podcasts just to talk about that book.
1: But yeah, um, for sure.
0: I think a great way for you to combine study then also using it for the podcast would just be to get on a, a zoom call with Altucher or any of these other guys, Evan Rosenberg. He's also in your cohort. He's in the chat, I think. Yeah, he said, I'll send me the Cliff Notes, so yeah. <laughs> we're all set. You know, get in a call with those guys and then um, amazing to go over those games, you know, because the uh, the the beauty of the annotations plus, like, challenging yourself with trying to understand what's going on behind the position. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, then also, had this, I really like the books for this uh, for this, uh cohort. Road to Chess Improvement by Yermolinsky. What's cool about that book is it gives you a framework, I think, for like, okay, here it is. I am studying my own games and I believe, I believe that is the basis. Like all this other stuff, Christ talking at me, that's cool. That's great. But the basis is me going over these games, doing the annotations right, and then as a plus, you get to go over it with a coach.
1: Yeah. It's it's a great book. Big Yermo fan.
0: Then classic games, we got the Karpov games. Amazing, dude. Amazing. Again, I think if you go over that with those games with like Evan or James, all these other kids in here, fantastic. Not kids. I don't know why I called them kids. I, my mind did that because there's a guy in your group called Cool Kid. He's probably – maybe he is a kid. I don't know. <laughs> Actually, there's a kid, um, Havish, who is um, crushing it, man. And he he is going to make 2200 soon. He would be an interesting – person to do sparring and stuff with speaking of sparring so here's the thing i want to try to sell you on um because i know the online thing gives you the heebie-jeebies but if you take your opening repertoire apart and then and then find out and you could, whether you're using our repertoire or you're just your own it would be like this position is going to happen a bunch and i could call that like a key position This position is going to happen a bunch. And then you spar it in uh, with people in your cohort. Oh, man, that's that's where it is. Then you get some deep experience and then you talk a little bit about it and then rinse and repeat.
1: You know, yeah, I agree. But again, then you have to put yourself in the other person's shoes, like they're out of all the time in the world, all the activities they could be doing. Yeah, they're like on the receiving end of like, hey, you're gonna play this position against yeah. me. It has nothing to do with your repertoire. But uh, goodbye to this uh, next 45 minutes of your life or whatever it is.
0: No, but you're gonna but I think it's great. And then you have to do it too. And so you're going to get thrown into a position that you're unfamiliar with as well.
1: Yeah. I can here, tell you're not
0: sold. That's okay.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's life is short, Jesse. My, my kids are like, you know, they're three inches taller every day. You can't waste a moment.
0: <laughs> my kids are really growing too, man. It's outrageous.
1: Yeah, it's crazy.
0: And then the other the kind of last significant thing is this review model games, which just means to go over games from your openings. And it doesn't mean just GM games. One of the cool things actually we got going on at the dojo is like uh, with our sparring, with our opening repertoires, we're starting to build databases that use our openings. And so instead of it being like the game of some GM to be a game of somebody who's around your level. Right. And then you can see kind of what are the typical mistakes that people are making because it's not super GM games, especially now back in yeah. the day they were different but now they're so computer driven that it's a lot of times it's just really incomprehensible to understand what they were doing
1: yeah i agree um yeah that's an, uh, a project idea i've had for a long time is yeah highlighting uh different how x rating beats y rating you know uh, but yeah at the top it's too hard um to answer black cypress's question yeah my online accounts i'm Benny Fischel on chess.com. I mainly just play titled Tuesday when I can there and I'm uh, perpetual chess, one word on Lee chess. Um, I go through, I only play basically three minute online. Um, and I, yeah, my activity waxes and wanes in that too. Like with everything else, chess related, uh, it's been waning lately especially now that I have to doom scroll 24 hours a day uh, with the Magnus <laughs> thing instead of my, my usual 12 hours a day.
0: You're right. Yeah. Um, The last stuff actually has to do with coaching lower rated players. Ned, do you do, you do any coaching still?
1: Not at the moment. I had a couple of scholastic students that I'd, I've been teaching for years that have stuck with it, but it's the new school year and I haven't heard from them. So I I may have lost my last uh, remaining student. Um, And we'll see, Uh, that's definitely possible. I'll revisit it at at some point in the future. Um, And another question in chat, Carter's asking if I signed up. I did sign up, but I'm not even in the Discord yet. I just got the email from DM Hokey uh, last night or this morning, so uh, I'll be be in there soon. Um, Anyway as you were saying, Justin.
0: So let me ask you this. Uh, do you think, in terms of your own chess improvement, that it's important to coach or yeah teach people that are lower rated than you?
1: Yeah, that's the altitude, uh plus one equals minus one. Um, I'm not 100% sold, I have uh, to say. Okay, that's uh, fine, yeah. And it's another ROI thing. like. Yeah, because there have been moments where I'm teaching some of my stronger students where like you're teaching the Lucina position or something and you're like, man, I should be able to explain this better. But still, the amount of time it takes for me to prep that properly right? Um, compare and Lucina may not be the best example like that one I can probably handle. But whatever it whatever position it may be, the amount of time it takes for me to be able to explain something. Yes, it increases my understanding but again, is that better than is that a better use than just studying tactics would have been for that period um I'm not hundred percent convinced, but I'm open to it. I mean James is certainly uh you know an accomplished guy, and I know that that you're you are an advocate as well, Jesse
0: of the plus minus equal absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. um okay, well, so that is it. That's like all the boxes there's a lot of boxes in there um. Do you think, let me, and you could answer this maybe now or, you know, after you've done it for a couple of months, but do you think there's something in there that we don't have
1: um, that should be in there? Let me think. Oh, uh, is physical fitness in there at all? That's a good question. Yeah. Um,
0: well, OK, here's one of the things that a uh, kind of question... Um, a kind of question that pertains to the physical fitness, right? So one of the things that it's part of this question: What does it take to take make, make national master? Is is it going to be different for different people? That's one take. I have my answer to that. Uh, and is it also going to be um, different for different age groups? Like, should you be doing different things for different ages? That's another one. And then the reason I bring those up is because For my sense, I think it's the same in terms of what you need to do for eight different ages um, and, you know, maybe people with different skill sets, right? Like you could say, oh, I'm good at tactics, so I should do this, or I'm good at this, so I should do this. So I think it's still the same, but fitness, oh man, it changes dramatically. I just turned 50, buddy.
1: I'm dying. <laughs> my
0: shoulder's all messed up. Dude, I don't know, my man. You're looking good, Jesse. <laughs> you're,
1: you're pretty fit. I'd, I'd sign up for that at 50. But I tell you,
0: the um, fitness is dramatic. So I'm going to say the fitness is the one thing where I think it's different for different kinds of people. And the older you get, the more significant it becomes. I was at that senior open and I could just tell, like, my competition was they were dying, dude. They were their bodies were truly falling apart and. And it just hurts. The older you get, the more it's going to be a factor. So that that's my take on it.
1: Yeah. And, and the reason I asked um, is just because when I play these classical tournaments, endurance is clearly so important. You know, right. I, uh, to the extent I can. I think we talked about this in Maryland when I saw you, IRL, Jesse. Yeah. To the extent I can, I'm trying not to play two games in a day when possible. Right. So sometimes that means taking buys. But meanwhile it's not so easy to get away so you feel kind of silly like you know uh putting this responsibility on your significant other or whatever it might be Mm -hmm. uh carving out this time setting aside professional (laughs) responsibilities and then you're there and you're like chilling in the hotel room you know (laughs) but but on the other hand like uh it's hard so that's why i mean I, i exercise anyway but one could always do better and i do think um it's it's especially, again, as, as you get older, I think it's, uh, and it's really important uh, in terms of, like, uh, achieving uh, OTB improvement. Right.
0: And just to put a kind of scientific spin on it, I guess what I'd say is, like, Kahneman basically says, you know, there's a capacity that everybody has for how much system two thinking they can do. At a certain point, though, it's going to shut off
1: yeah <laughs> it's gonna
0: shut off, dude. And there's a variety of reasons it can shut off too. Distraction's one of the uh, the big ones. like if you if you have a, a loud noise going on or anything else that happens to distract you, your system too will just be much more likely to shut down. And I can say, and you've had the experience too you you play a long round one game and then you go immediately into a round two. What's gonna happen is when it's time to really think deeply, your mind's gonna be like, screw it, this move looks good enough. Right. Right. Right? That's what your mind's going to do. And your mind will feel good about it too. Just be like, God, it looks all right, you know. And that kind of laziness is deadly to chess. And you you can tell yourself, I'm not going to be lazy. But if you're totally exhausted, you know, forget about it. You know, you're going to make the lazy decision anyway, which will then create bad habits for you going forward. So, absolutely, fitness. And it would be an interesting thing. And maybe there might be some way to build it in.
1: Yeah, I fitness. think that you should be able to check a box if you like, you know, whatever it doesn't, whatever your routine is, whether it's, you know, running or cardio or weightlifting, like it should go towards the thing, even if it's only fractional. Um, yeah. So and how, how
0: would it, how would it like, like what, X amount of, be like X amount of activity a week or something like that? Or,
1: yeah. Like, I don't know. People say do cardio. I mean, I'm, I, people have different methods um, sure, sure, of, right. of what they do. So I don't want to step out of my lane too far, but uh, some way of incorporating, like, did you, act, yeah. Did you exercise three times a week, just keep it. And that could even include like a 45 minute walk. Um, and uh, yeah, people in the chat are still talking about the mic. I, I double checked. I mean, it says it's the shore mic that's importing. I apologize for uh, any tech issues. Huh? Okay.
0: Um, all right. Well, that was kind of interesting. You know, one thing um, that's fun to think about, too, is this, this bet that uh, Neil Bruce made. Since you're wearing a shirt, I was thinking about it. Um, uh-huh. So Neil Bruce is the guy who helped found Chess Punks, and he has a bet. He's like 17, 1800 now. He just played in this tournament. He did well, but he has a bet that he's going to make it. He's like 51 now, I think, and he has a bet that he can make master by like 10 years Yeah, (laughs) Ah, and I didn't want to bet against him because I I just felt that was cruel. But I don't think he's going to make it. (laughs) Well, I hope he makes it, but I don't think he's going to make it. I think the or let's just say the odds are against him.
1: Yeah, Um, it's always an uphill climb. I mean, if anyone will stick with the work, it's Neil. So it's he's a good test case uh, in terms of uh, what's possible. Whereas
0: you, my friend, I think you could do it, man. I definitely think you could do it. Um, I haven't, you know, spent a lot of time looking at your games, but just, like, looking at the rating graph, like, where you are with your rating, the fact that you were previously there, the fact that you've got a coach, which will help, and that you have this 50 games a year, I think that's great, even if it was 40, you know, in that range. As long as you really go over the games and, like, especially, yeah, annotated as if it were for a wider audience... Do this stuff in this program, dude. Yeah, I think you can make it. And it'd be cool for your podcast too, man.
1: Yeah. No, it'd it really would be really cool.
0: Be like, yeah, yeah dude. I'm not, maybe you'd be like, I'm nobody special, man, but I made it, man. I made it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would it would be good. And honestly, like like I told you uh the other day, um it's the the cohort having like uh other people with a shared mission. I mean, I feel like the motivation is the main thing that I I need constant um refreshing of like even like i you know i do weekly lessons with axel and usually it's like i'm playing title tuesday so we wouldn't play a tournament we can go over opening structures but the last month or so has just been like chaotic where i feel bad because i have to like conjure up what we should look at because i don't have any games really mm. you know and that that's not a good good place to be right right okay um, Ty's asking if you think it's realistic to make NM am always playing effectively the same openings. I definitely think so. I mean, when I interviewed David Howell recently, he was talking about how even in the candidates, he was surprised uh, how narrow some of the repertoires were. And I think um, if you're playing invitational tournaments where people can prep for you, that you probably need um, some surprise element, but if it's just like a Swiss um, and especially if your openings are decent, like um, they're not like gimmicky. Um, I don't think openings, uh, I, don't, I think uh Surprise value is overrated, yeah. Like, uh, is that Dennis Chessweep? Um, like Chessweep is saying, uh, MVL played uh, played the same for 20 years, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. He's been getting popped by Caruana and the Nidorf, too. Uh, <laughs> I think just on our level, whether it's you know some people playing in open tournaments, that the genius of the American open tournaments is those games don't get recorded in the database. Down- yeah. yeah so a problem though is if you're playing blitz and you're playing those games it better be under a hidden account so james has yeah. had a huge loss because the guy has great openings but he's playing them all the time on both lead chess and chess.com so it's just like wasted because then people can easily see what's coming
1: yeah although again if it's like a goitsburg tournament a continental chess tournament um i'm I'm it depends, a lot comes down to when the pairings go up and True. stuff. but yeah, I have a narrow repertoire and I've certainly run into a few opponents who told me they prep for me, but in in most cases, the openings came out fine. Like my openings right. are like, I'm I'm not playing junk. So yeah. Like, uh, and, 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 and of course the counter of it, like you say is if you play it a lot, you know it well. So good luck figuring out in 20 minutes what I've, you know, been learning for years.
0: Though um, I, though I gotta say, if I have 20 minutes against somebody, before the round starts which is common uh it's not like i can crack an opening but it's a huge advantage just for it helps what's coming. Yeah, it just to know what's going to happen
1: you know yeah just, and just to refresh that one line
0: yeah um, yeah yeah def-
1: definitely helps so that's a and little
0: yeah. that's a little thing out there i'll tell this i'm telling this i'm, I'm yelling at you but james I'm yelling to you again <laughs> buddy stop playing online or do hit an account <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah it's rough these days i mean but now for me it's like even if I switch, like it's all there. I'm not gonna like I'm in too deep, you know. Yeah. Like I know I know the openings. I know I can I can workshop a few surprises here and there. But let's but say like, you, let's my say repertoire st- is gonna be my repertoire. Let's say you stopped
0: um, uh-huh. playing online or did a hidden account. What would happen? I guarantee is your openings would slowly. It, it, they will go through an evolution. Like you don't have maybe your openings won't change dramatically, but the lines that the sub variations and everything would end up changing.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. That's, right? that's a good so point. So you would
0: end up f- growing into uh, a darker thing for them to try to
1: imagine what's going to hit them with. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, dude, that was great. That was All great. All right, man. Jesse, I got to plug a few things. All right. Plug we a few go. things. blood Very, plug, very plug. important. Yeah. yeah it's All right. right. Uh, number one, obviously perpetual chess podcast, uh, yeah. great, uh, interviews with both, uh, adult amateurs, uh, like myself, striving to get better uh, every day in the struggle. And um, with uh, Grandmasters, the new episode with Kaidanov is out. He's an amazing treasure trove of uh, stories and information. Um, and although lately I can't keep up with the news flow, which is <laughs> something I have to think about in terms of uh, how I release episodes. But number two, more importantly, because I know it's like 90 minutes or whatever, often it's a big commitment. But more importantly, I started a new uh chess newsletter which I'm calling the perpetual chess link fest which is basically just every Friday I'm going to send out all the best chess content I mostly read but occasionally like a YouTube video or other podcast Um, so basically it's just a collection of links without a lot of pros that I'm going to send out once a week so because obviously uh, the information fire hose is relentless and I kind of have to keep up with it anyway and yeah yeah, it's it's free so um, I'll uh, track down a link and See if I can drop it in, but uh would appreciate anyone interested signing up for that.
0: Yeah, while he's doing that, what I will say is, uh, if you didn't know already, Ben Johnson, our guest, kind of invented the chess podcast. He might be modest and saying, it, but it is true. And so his podcast has become like the number one place where the top players go, top trainers go, top chess improvers go. And yeah, it I have not listened to every single one of them, but I think it's impossible to. <laughs> so
1: Dude, you can you go get.
0: in there, you can spend a lifetime in there with all these past episodes, and you can kind of search out which episodes you're most interested in. Everybody you might be interested in talking, listening to is on his show.
1: Yeah, and you can hit me up on Twitter if you're interested in a certain topic. I also have a page on the website where they're roughly sorted by topic, but yeah, if you're just coming in now, good luck catching up. But uh yeah but yeah we we talk chess business, chess history, chess improvement. Um yeah, and my favorite of the stories. Um how do I get someone to uh, sneak this link in the chat, Jesse?
0: Uh you could send it to me on Twitter. Uh, Cartier's got it. Thank you, oh, okay. Cartier. Great. Nice.
1: Um excellent. Well uh thanks for tuning in everyone. Um yeah, we will see 80 games. I mean, I I do think Jesse, if I could do 80 games in a year and a half if I can maintain this pace. Yeah. Again, I don't know if uh, right now I'm 2120. Uh-huh. Um especially considering that some of those games would probably be rapid. Um I, I think at minimum I could be at 2160 within 80 games and I think if I did 160 over 3 years I, I feel like I'd I've decent to good chances of uh, getting back twenty two hundred. Now
0: let me just say something interesting about that. Actually, for our system, rapid doesn't count.
1: Oh, interesting. Rapid I mean, doesn't you count. Got to tell for... the USCF. <laughs> no, no. But our
0: but our check boxes. You like, oh, okay. for us that's just a fun thing. You want to have fun with the rapid,
1: fine, but it doesn't count. Towards... And we're talking about like game thirty, game forty five, maybe. I'm using that the wrong doesn't count. Term. Yeah,
0: that's not a classical game. That's a rapid.
1: Okay. Game. Wow.
0: So. Um, Now, by the way, like that 80 games, it doesn't have to happen in a year and a half or whatever. But like, I'm sure, too, John Donaldson was not talking about rapid games when he said 50. I'm pretty sure that I know that guy well enough. He's not talking about 50 uh, rapid games, right? So, yeah, uh, I would say it would be better if you had to dial it down to, to dial it down to 40 rather than thinking that the rapid games were like
1: helping you. I don't know. I think Axel would, would beg to differ. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll leave but. it with
0: him. But in terms of games that you annotate for us, for the world, that you spend some time on, definitely it's the classical and not the Game 30. Okay. Right?
1: All right. And I could do 40 classical games a year. I probably already am. So yeah, it's yeah. really anything beyond that is hard. But Okay. All right, my man. That was great. Yeah, that's fun. Thanks for watching slash listening, everyone. Um, and... And uh, yeah, enjoy the, the ongoing chess drama. <laughs> All right, till next
0: time. Bye. <laughs> Bye.